And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. Welcome to Better to Speak, the podcast where we use storytelling to transform silence into language and action. I'm your host, Casey Felton. This season, we'll be exploring socio-political issues affecting Black communities through the lens of young Black storytellers and changemakers. This is the state of the young Black advocate. Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. So if you listen to the first episode of this season, Casey's story, or if you know me personally or follow me on social media, you've probably heard me talk a lot about my journey with ADHD since I started treatment for it last year. Um, And since I've started treatment, I've come across a lot of really great resources, platforms, individuals who share a lot of great content about ADHD and explore a lot of interesting intersections and topics within the ADHD experience um, or within the neurodivergent experience at large. Um, And for me personally, I've really loved creators who talk about, like I mentioned, those very niche aspects and intersections of that experience, um, as opposed to the cliche or stereotypical traits of ADHD and the creators that offer different approaches than the typical hacks and tricks and pretty much kind of reinforce this idea that you can organize or work your way out of ADHD. And I mentioned all that to say that especially as a, a black woman with ADHD, um, a lot of that just doesn't work for us. And even when there's at a baseline, like not a lot of information about um, what it means to be black, what it means to be a black woman and have ADHD, I've really found a lot of either community or like I mentioned, just great information and validation, I think, from those creators. Um, For example, some of the folks whose content and platforms I've really enjoyed are um, the Translating ADHD podcast with host Shelly Collin and Cameron Gott, the Women in ADHD podcast with host Katie Weber, um, the Divided Attention podcast with host Keishari and Brenix. Um, that's a really dope podcast with two millennial women with ADHD. Torian Timms, who's the creator of the Sisters with ADHD platform. So it's a podcast, um, Instagram page, and a Slack channel, I believe. And then Rach Adobu, who created the Adulting with ADHD platform, as well as the ADHD Traits card. So I got both the, um, it's a set of cards for hyperactive and inattentive types. And so they have just definitions and explanations of different traits of ADHD, as well as some like tips for each trait. Um, So just those are just some of the examples of like a lot of just really innovative and creative approaches to not only talking about ADHD, but trying to offer solutions. Which brings us to today's edition of Let's TikTok About It, which comes from Tiffany Lindley at Epiphany Lane on TikTok, who is an ADHD and anxiety counselor based in Texas. So I had a thought in session with one of my clients today, and I just really had to share because I thought it was, uh, I mean, kind of profound. I mean, not to toot my own horn, but it just, it made so much sense to me, and it made so much sense to the client that I thought it might be helpful. Uh, I made a tweet about it, and basically it's like the neurodivergent, specifically ADHD brain, and even people on the autism spectrum, uh, I feel like it's wired to thrive. It's not wired to survive. And so that's why basic stuff that like typical neurotypical people just do and like it makes perfect sense to them. Neurodivergence like don't understand 
the need for all of the effort, especially when there's so many other cool things you could be doing or exploring or discovering. So like I said, this is just one example of the community of ADHD and neurodivergent folks on TikTok or those who support folks with ADHD, um, which has been great for me personally just to learn from really everyday people who are finding creative ways to navigate ADHD or who are using their platform to shed light on aspects of it that don't necessarily get as much attention um, in those mainstream conversations. So before we get into today's conversation, here are some quick announcements to let you know about what we have going on at Better to Speak. I'm happy to announce the kickoff of our new campaign, State of the Young Black Advocate, which will explore narrative power among black youth and young adults. Narrative power is described as the power to dictate norms and values in society. This includes the ability to shape what's possible and determine what's politically realistic, and even to stretch beyond the possible and establish what is inevitable. So through community outreach and engagement, including a survey, community events, and partnerships with Black youth leaders and Black youth-led organizations, we hope to name the dominant narratives that limit Black youth and young adults in society and uncover new narratives that we've defined for ourselves on our own terms and uplift those narratives through collaborative media. So we'll highlight community stories like what we're doing on this season of the podcast and feature the voices and stories of folks in the community who are embodying new narratives and new ways of being for Black folks in our communities. To learn more about the State of the Young Black Advocate campaign, head to bettertospeak.org, and the direct link will also be in the show notes. So another great resource that I found on my journey with ADHD is the Duke Center for Women and Girls with ADHD, which is a recently established center out of Duke University's Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences Department in their School of Medicine. I got the chance to chat with Amina Cisse, who works at the center as the project coordinator, about her work there and about how the Duke Center is filling the gap in research and information about how ADHD uniquely impacts women and girls. This is Amina's story. So my name is Amina Cisse. I'm a Sierra Leonean American, and um, I am currently pursuing my master's in public health um, with a focus in public health practice and policy. I have always had an interest in racial health disparities, social determinants of health, women's health, and overall health policy advocacy. And um, yeah, this has been something that I've always been very, very passionate about, um, particularly with my interest in women's and maternal health. Um, Also, in regards to the maternal mortality crisis that's going on in America with Black mothers um, being more likely um, to die from pregnancy-related complications, being three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications compared to white women. Um, I've always found this interesting and also disheartening. And um, sometime last year, I was in the the job search, and one of my um, family members actually Um, told me about this job position as a project coordinator for the Duke Center for Girls and Women with ADHD. And she knew of my interest in maternal health and women's health. And so she was like, I think this will be a great opportunity for you. Um, And so I looked at the job description and it seemed like something that I could really excel in and also learn a lot from because I didn't know much about ADHD and all of the disparities that exist within girls and women. And so I applied for the position and I got it. And so my role here is, as I said, a project coordinator. Um, I'm not a clinician, but I do work alongside clinicians. And in this role, I bring my social media marketing expertise as well as my 
public health background, health communication background. And I really make sure that the information that we put out there on our website and our social media platforms are easy to understand and aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. Great. And can you tell us more about the the Duke Center? Um, so how did it come to be? What work um, are you all doing currently? Um, and like you said, can you expand a little bit on your role with the projects that you all are doing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So just a little bit about the Duke Center for Girls and Women with ADHD. So the center was established through an anonymous gift of a million dollars from a family to establish this center. They had a female in their family that has ADHD and they were experiencing a lot of challenges with getting this um, female properly diagnosed and treated. And their experience was is not unusual for girls and women with ADHD. And so they figured if they were having these challenges, then imagine all the other challenges and barriers and roadblocks that other families are experiencing. And so with that, that is how the Duke Center for Girls and Women with ADHD came to be. And so our mission is to advance education among patients, families, clinicians, educators, and the public about the unique needs of girls and women with ADHD across the lifespan um, by disseminating evidence-based information, partnering with community organizations, and and conducting innovative research. And the center aims to directly impact and enhance the lives of girls and women living with ADHD. And then also just something, uh, just a little bit more about, you know, some of our upcoming projects. So we are definitely focusing on um, conducting what's called community consultation studios or um, virtual listening sessions. And these will be conducted virtually, which will have about 10 to 15 people per session. Um, Everyone will be compensated for their time. And the purpose of these virtual listening sessions is to hear directly from girls and women with ADHD, their families, and diverse stakeholders in order to inform the development and dissemination of research. Um, And this is a group that has oftentimes been left out of research. And so we want to make sure that we are amplifying girls and women with ADHD. We wanna make sure we're amplifying their voices as much as possible. And um, we also have some support groups in the pipeline that we're working on. Um, Like I said, we really, really want to hear about the experiences of girls and women. And we're in the process of figuring this out. So people can definitely sign up for our newsletter, which I'll give more information about as well, um, to stay up to date um, on this and other initiatives that we have going on. Great. And through all of that work, um, I know we had talked about this, but some content that you've put out as far as um, Black women and girls' experiences with ADHD, um, can you talk about the process to create that um, piece of content as well as just like what you've learned from um, the research that you all have worked on? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned at the beginning, um, I didn't know much about ADHD coming in, but now being in this role for several months, I feel like I have learned a a great deal of knowledge and I'm also still learning every single day. Um, So one thing about, I just want to back up a little bit just to orient all of the listeners about what is ADHD. So it stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And so essentially ADHD is a neurodevelopment disorder which means it has to do with how the brain develops, and it is categorized by three subtypes, which are inattentive, 
hyperactive slash impulsive and combined. And so typically ADHD will persist across the lifespan. So about 60% of people diagnosed during childhood will continue to meet the criteria in adulthood. And then ADHD is also associated with significant impairments, specifically with people having difficulties at school, at work, socially. It really impacts various areas of one's life. And also, these symptoms can look different over time. So typically, children that exhibit hyperactive and impulsive symptoms experience less of those symptoms over time. And those that experience inattentive symptoms usually tend to increase over time as people get older. And so with that, specifically with ADHD in girls and women, girls are typically, um, they're more likely to present with inattentive symptoms. So this can look like trouble sustaining attention, disorganization, and forgetfulness. And also one of the reasons why um, it's underdiagnosed in girls and women is because like I said, they tend to have the inattentive subtype, and these symptoms are usually less obvious and not as disruptive um, as hyperactivity or impulsivity. And so teachers can often miss this, and it's not until later on in life where there are more stressors that these symptoms become more obvious. And so when we consider the impact of race within this, it kind of, it can make this 10 times harder to notice the signs of ADHD in girls and women. And so back to your question about how was I able to create this content? So I'll actually say that one of the very first things that we put out was a blog um, specifically about how can we help black girls and brown girls, black girls and brown girls and women um, with, you know, learning more knowledge about ADHD. So it was four steps towards better serving black and brown girls and women with ADHD. And this is actually among the top five pages most visited on our website. And so through this, basically my process was going through journal articles, collecting as much information as I could, and then consolidating that information and making sure that I um, pinpointed the most critical points for people. And so I was able to do this with the help of my co-director and, um, you know, we kind of teamed up on this and um, we got feedback from a lot of people on our team. So we were really able to um, nail this down and put it out there. And we are very, very proud of this. And so with February being um, Black History Month, I took it upon myself to, to really dive in a little bit deeper and make sure that I create content that specifically speaks to um, Black girls and Black women with ADHD. And so being that I had being that we had collaborated on that um, blog, I was able to easily take some of that information and then put it into a very creative and aesthetically pleasing social media post. And then um, kind of building on that, what do you think is maybe still missing in terms of narratives? I know you mentioned research as well um, when it comes to ADHD in general, and then of course, specifically for women and then black women and girls. Yes. So one thing about ADHD, um, there's this misconception that it is a boy disorder. And um, currently, there's a lot of mixed research. Um, The data we have regarding ADHD and people of color is mixed, with some studies suggesting that Black children are diagnosed less often 
compared to white children. And then there's some more recent data suggesting that black children are more are diagnosed more often. And so additionally, there's one study that stated that African Americans are two and a half times more likely to receive a diagnosis of conduct disorder, which is a more severe behavioral disorder than there are ADHD, and five times more likely than non-Hispanic white children to receive a diagnosis of an, an adjustment an adjustment disorder than ADHD. And then we have another study that found that Black adults were 77% less likely to receive a diagnosis than white adults. Um, And the underdiagnosis of ADHD in Black adults can be attributed to racial discrimination in the medical field. So there's mixed data, but ultimately what we do know is that race can definitely play a role. Um, in diagnosis and treatment for ADHD. And being a a female of color with ADHD definitely adds um, further complicating layers, um, given that ADHD is just so often misunderstood. And as I stated earlier, with um, the inattentive uh, presentation, it's uh, it's often missed. And so it's really important that we spread more information about what this looks like in girls because it it's very unique. And so it's important for people to know, especially educators, you know, they're often the first line of contact besides the family with, with the student. And so if we're better able to produce um, information and reliable sources of information to educate different sectors, then we can begin to start to kind of close that gap. Um, And also just including more, being intentional about um, recruiting um, more girls and women um, from marginalized backgrounds. So more Black girls, more Black women, all of that stuff. We need to be intentional, mindful, and sensitive to, you know, how we recruit racial minorities to be a part of research studies, because the truth is, there's a lot of research that has not been dived into. And then building on that, um, I know you mentioned that you have a background in um, health communications. And so I was curious about like, what is the, maybe the connection between like the, the more like scientific or academic research. And then in terms of like, you know, just kind of everyday information that people may come across in like day-to-day life and just more, um, information that's like more accessible to just broader communities. Um, I think a lot about like on social media, um, on TikTok, especially I hear a lot about or see a lot of content about people with ADHD or people um, with autism or in other um, communities who share, you know, just their experiences or just other educational content. And I'm just thinking about like, I don't know, like, what is that, that um, maybe connection between like how Mm -hmm. more like, official kind of organizations like the Duke Center who are like, you know, clinicians and people who do this type of research versus like everyday people. Um, Maybe like if you have any thoughts about like um, how that kind of fits into maybe this ecosystem of information resources um, for ADHD. Yeah, wonderful question. So in my like studies of health communication, one of the most important things that we learned was health literacy. You want to make sure that the people that you're working with or the the audience that you're trying to cater to, you want to make sure that they are able to understand that information. And so for us at the Duke Center, that looks like having, um, what's it called? 
checks and balances. So if I create something, I always make sure to pass it through my co-director. And then we have a freelance writer who also um, provides the lens of, well, do you all think that this would be understandable to the average person? Because I mean, what's the use of putting out all of this information if nobody's able to understand it? So I think we have a very good process of making sure that the information is accessible and understandable, and people can apply the information to their everyday life. Um, I actually just gave a presentation um, at my alma mater, UNC Charlotte, about health literacy and health communication and how I have been able um, to use that not only in my current role, but in my past roles. And I have seen this this common thread that it it is very important to make sure that you are considering your audience because you just... You never want to put something in there or put something out there that people won't understand, you know, and I can give an example of this. We are working on um, a series called Road to Diagnosis. And so when I typed the name, I just typed in Road to DX. And so I had got the feedback that maybe we should change the DX to diagnosis because not everybody will know what DX is unless you're in the medical field or in public health or something like that. And even at that, you still may not know. So I think that um, we try to do a really good job of checking through everything. And we have very thorough people on the team to make sure that um, everything is out there is understandable. And kind of following up to that, I just thought of this as you were speaking, but um, in terms of like, like you mentioned, applying that information or an individual applying that information to their day-to-day lives. I also see a lot of content about um, people like self-diagnosing, whether it's ADHD or other, you know, conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have any thoughts about like from that public health perspective about like with the, the barriers that exist for diagnosis or just the lack of, you know, general information about it? Like how do, how does someone who might think that they have ADHD kind of start in terms of, Mm-hmm. Um, gathering information or, you know, pursuing diagnosis and that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it definitely speaks a lot to public health, because as we know, it there, there are so many factors that impact health, social determinants of health. You know, you have your environment, you have, you know, where you're living, your socioeconomic background, all of these things. And so if someone, you know, does not have access to quality care or does not have insurance to get that quality care, you know, they are already, you know, facing so many potential adverse outcomes. And I'll go into some of the adverse outcomes of um, delayed treatment for girls and women with um, ADHD. But back to your question, I definitely think that self-advocacy is very important. And through that, um, I think looking at reputable organizations um, such as CHAD or Child Mind Institute um, or the National um, Mental Health Institute, NAMI, is where you can really find, or the CDC is really where you can find some some credible information. Um, I also know that they have some surveys out there. I don't know that those are 100% recommended um, for certain things, but it, well, let me take that back. I think they can do that, but they shouldn't directly base it on that. It should be more of a of an introduction. And then you can have that in your toolbox for when you are finally able to see a primary care provider. Now, 
one of the things at the center, we do not provide clinical care like evaluations, therapy, or medication management. Um, but if you do go to our website, we have links to other sites where you can find more information about clinical services. And also, one of our initiative is to build up our resources. So we also want to be able to be that resource hub where people can go if, you know, they need information, if they need to be able to access a provider. So I would definitely recommend that because um, nobody knows what's going on inside of our bodies except for us. We are we are our own best advocates. So you first start with yourself and then, um, like I said, go to some of those other resources that I've mentioned, come back to the Duke Center for Girls and Women with ADHD as we are building up those resources and, um, you know, just kind of go from there. But I definitely do agree that there are a lot of barriers in place that make it so much harder. And I think that's one of the most powerful things about social media, like through this work, I've seen so many um, social media platforms dedicated to ADHD and girls and women. And it's like people can find so much information out there. But I think it's also about like filtering through like, what is credible, what is accurate, and then kind of sticking with that. And in terms of the, um, I know you mentioned the beginning, the impacts of that kind of delayed diagnosis. Can you um, share about like what that might look like for someone? Yes, definitely. So we know that girls and women that are typically later, that are diagnosed a little bit later, they typically um, are at risk for self-harm, mood disorders, unplanned pregnancy, and also suicide attempts. So this is why we just find it so important to amplify the voices of girls and women um, and make making sure that we are putting out evidence-based, reliable sources so that we can bridge that gap and so that people are able to have access to this information, specifically for clinicians. Because as I said, you know, for a very long time, this was seen as a as a boy disorder. And so if clinicians have this bias, if if teachers only see that, um, if teachers only see the hyperactivity and impulsivity, it's like, you know, there's a gap. And so we want to make sure that that we diagnose girls as early as possible so that they can, you know, live their best lives and, you know, reach their fullest potential, which goes back to our vision of um, enabling every person with ADHD who identifies as female, as well as their families, providers, and communities to better understand the unique needs of girls and women with ADHD, thereby allowing individuals to seek and receive appropriate treatment, find supportive communities, and reach their full potential. Great. And I know you mentioned um, towards the beginning about the work that you all are doing to um, move forward on that vision and mission. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the the focus groups and opportunities for our community to get involved? So we will definitely be advertising this on our social media and our website. So I would definitely recommend for everyone to just take a look at our website, um, which I will um, include that at the end as well as sign up for our newsletter. And that website is ADHDgirlsandwomen.org. And um, I'll also give that information to include in the show notes. But we're definitely looking for people from, you know, diverse diverse backgrounds. And another thing that we're, um, that's in the developmental stage is the Community Advisory Council. 
Um, we, like I said, we believe it's important to receive feedback from stakeholders on center activities, the content and other things that will be happening. So we're really looking for people from diverse occupational backgrounds, um, expertise, um, race, you know, racial minorities, age range, because we know that um, this, the ADHD it exists over the lifespan. So we really want to make sure that we are including girls and women and their families from, from all backgrounds and also incorporating a racial equity lens because we really need to hear from the women who are marginalized. And then um, what are some steps that listeners can take, whether they have ADHD or know someone who does, to um, increase you know just general community awareness and support for those with ADHD? Yeah, so the four steps that I would give is one, it's really important to engage in open dialogue within your community about the disparities that exist. So that looks like highlighting the role of implicit and explicit bias in diagnosis and treatment. Um, Another suggestion or another step would be to attend conferences or webinars and workshops to learn more about this topic. And then again, you can take that information with you and share it with your community. So we know now, like in this virtual world that, you know, there are so many webinars, there's so many opportunities to like learn more. And so I definitely just, I highly recommend that people seek out those opportunities and you can go to Chad and Attitude, and I'll also um, pass over that information to include in the show notes. They always have webinars um, about various topics related to um, ADHD in girls and women. I would also recommend just more research with the focus on girls and women with ADHD um, and specific to our conversation on racial minorities such as Black girls and women with ADHD. Um, We want to be intentional mindful and sensitive to how we recruit racial minorities to be a part of research studies because we do know that there is a lack of that and so in order to to better serve this community we need to have more research and then lastly um this goes back to the point that i was saying earlier be your biggest advocate you know if you think you have adhd or you know someone that has adhd um I would encourage you to talk to your primary care provider if you have one. I'm aware that not everybody has a primary care provider due to, you know, so many different factors. But if you do have one, um, definitely reach out, see what they can do. And also keep a journal for yourself. If you think that you are experiencing ADHD symptoms, if you've taken a survey or anything, keep all of that in your toolbox so that you feel empowered when that time does come to to have an appointment with your PCP. You have all of this information laid out for you. And then um, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you'd like to mention that you think listeners should know? We will also have an e-library on our website. And so this will essentially be a live resource portal on our website. So this will include vetted research articles, books, webinars, podcasts, and more. And so we're really looking forward to to launching this and having this on our website so that people have access to, to um, to different resources. And then another thing that I wanted to mention is that we are, we've had several different um, community outreach opportunities, which again, aligns with our mission and vision. We've been able to collaborate with different organizations. We actually recently put out ADHD in the workplace as a man and woman, which is on our YouTube. 
Um, and we just think it's really important to to highlight what those gender differences can be as well. And then we are also thinking about partnering with um, pediatric clinics and finding out how we can support them and what resources they need as they diagnose um, young girls um, with ADHD. And then lastly, um, people can follow us on Instagram at ADHD Girls Duke, um, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn, we're just the Duke Center for Girls and Women with ADHD. And then um, if anyone has any questions or comments or anything like that, feel free to email us at ADHDgirls at dm.duke.edu. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to keep learning about ADHD and get connected to other mental health resources, check out the links in the show notes. You can also find links to stay connected with the Duke Center's work and opportunities that they have to get involved. Again, be sure to rate and review Better to Speak the podcast on whatever listening platform you're using right now and donate if you feel moved to in order to support and sustain the show. Once again, I'm your host, Casey Felton. Thank you for listening.